0: Chapter thirty of the Romance of Modern Chemistry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Romance of Modern Chemistry by James C. Phillip. Chapter thirty How Trifling Observations Lead to Great Discoveries. The scientist who is advancing into the unknown generally sets out with the object of searching for something which his theories lead him to believe is to be found in the unexplored region just ahead. It frequently happens, however, that as he steadily plods forward, he discovers something by the way which is of much greater importance than the ultimate object of his search. The story of the ways in which some such unexpected discoveries have been made is interesting, if not romantic, and the rehearsal of one or two of these will show the reader how much depends sometimes on a casual occurrence, and on the observer's readiness to note what happens, and to take advantage of it. The discovery of oxygen, the important element which forms one-fifth by volume of the air, was made in a very casual sort of fashion about 140 years ago. Priestley, we are told, was very proud of a burning glass which had come into his possession, and was going round his laboratory one day, concentrating the sun's rays with this lens, and focusing them on all sorts of substances. Among the materials which he had thus happened to expose to the heat of the concentrated solar rays was oxide of mercury which, as we now know, is very readily split up by heating into its constituent elements, mercury and oxygen. Priestley observed that a gas was given off from the mercury oxide, and when he had collected some of the gas, he was able to show that a candle burned in it with a remarkably vigorous flame. To Priestley this was something quite new and fascinating. As he says himself, quote, This surprised me more than I can well express. I was utterly at a loss how to account for it, unquote further experiments showed him that the gas, quote, possessed all the properties of common air, only in much greater perfection, unquote. He had, in fact, discovered oxygen, and all as the result of curiosity about the powers of his newly acquired lens. He was, it is true, on the lookout for new gases at that time, but, after all, the concentration of the sun's rays by a lens is a most unusual way of producing heat, and would not naturally be chosen for that purpose. If, however, the investigator's mind is occupied with a definite subject, it is wonderful how the most trifling occurrences are seen by him to have a bearing on the problem, and are made to contribute to its solution. So it was with Priestley, and so it has been in many other cases which might be quoted. One of those which has been put on record occurred in connection with the discovery of blasting gelatine by Nobel. As has been stated in a previous chapter, The dangerously explosive substance, nitroglycerin, cannot by itself be safely handled and transported. The difficulty may be got over by soaking up the liquid nitroglycerin into kieselgur, and so converting it into the product known as dynamite. It was obvious to Nobel that this operation involved a reduction of the explosive force of nitroglycerin, for the absorbent kieselgur is a neutral, harmless, non-explosive material. So although it can take up as much as three times its quantity of nitroglycerin, the explosive power of the latter is lowered by one fourth. Nobel was therefore anxious to find as a substitute for Kieselger some substance which would convert nitroglycerin into a form suitable for safe handling and transport, and which at the same time, being itself explosive, would not diminish the effectiveness of the nitroglycerin. The discovery of a material with the desired properties came quite by accident. Nobel cut his finger one day in the laboratory and procured some collodion to paint over the cut and so form an artificial protective skin. Collodion, it should be stated, is a solution of a substance resembling gun-cotton in a mixture of alcohol and ether. As these two liquids are very volatile, a film of collodion exposed to the air soon dries up and forms the skin. After Nobel had used a little of the collodion to paint over the wound, it occurred to him to pour what was left into a vessel containing nitroglycerin. He did this and observed that the clodian mixed with the nitroglycerin and formed a jelly-like mass. This little observation was enough to show him the way in which the problem of the replacement of kiesilgur by a more active substance could be solved. Experiments were carried out on the large scale, and these led to the manufacture of the explosive known as blasting gelatin, which is a mixture of nine parts of nitroglycerin and one part of soluble gun-cotton. Pure blasting gelatin is so violent in its action that it cannot be used except for the hardest rocks it was employed for instance in parts of the st goddard tunnel for ordinary practical purposes however the explosive power of blasting gelatine is modified by introducing a certain amount of non-explosive absorbent material some discoveries have actually been made through an accident happening to the apparatus with which the experiments were being carried out this was the case with one important series of investigations into the behaviour of gases and the famous chemist graham has explained what it was that led him to make his wonderful experiments on gaseous diffusion it appears that an earlier worker doberiner had occasion to prepare large quantities of hydrogen and one day accidentally used as gas holder a glass jar which had a tiny crack in it now it is a well-known fact that if an undamaged glass jar or tumbler containing hydrogen or air is inverted in a dish of water so that the level of the water outside and inside the jar or tumbler is the same that no appreciable change will take place in the position of the water level, even after a considerable time. But Doberreiner, to his great surprise, found that with his crack jar inverted in water and containing hydrogen, the water gradually rose inside, one and a half inches in twelve hours, two and two-thirds inches in twenty-four hours. It was left to Graham to give the correct interpretation of this very striking observation. He showed that hydrogen, as the lightest known gas, can get through minute apertures more rapidly than any other gas, so that what occurred in Dobereiner's cracked glass jar was an escape of hydrogen from the inside to the outside, accompanied by a slower entrance of air through the crack. As the hydrogen escaped more rapidly than the air got in, the pressure of the gas inside the jar was lowered, and the level of the water rose. Thus it was that the use of a cracked vessel instead of a sound one led on to Graham's famous investigations on the diffusion of gases. A more recent and equally striking instance of a breakage leading directly to a valuable discovery has been recorded in connection with the manufacture of artificial indigo, a manufacture which, as we have already seen, furnishes a conspicuous case of the chemist's successful attempt to build up natural products and to compete with nature herself. One of the most important steps in the manufacturing process is the production of phthalic acid from naphthalene, the chief raw material of synthetic indigo. This change can be effected by the action of hot sulfuric acid upon naphthalene, but only slowly. In the course, however, of experiments carried out with the object of improving the method of converting naphthalene into phthalic acid, the bulb of a thermometer was accidentally broken, and the mercury ran out into the heated mixture. It was at once noticed that, in presence of mercury, the conversion of naphthalene into phthalic acid was much accelerated, and this chance observation led at once to the desired improvement of the process. The use of mercury at this stage of indigo manufacture is now an established custom. The reader must, of course, remember that without adequate knowledge on the part of the investigator, and without keenness of observation, these chance occurrences would have been of no account. The observer, even supposing he has the necessary equipment, must always be on the lookout for what is strange and unexpected, always eager to see nature in unfamiliar garb. The difficulty is that people sometimes make a valuable observation without attaching importance to it. It may be difficult to bring their new discovery into harmony with what they already know, and so they come to the conclusion that their observation must have been wrong, and that their senses must have deceived them, or else by some forced explanation, they seek to fit the newly observed facts into some of the mental pigeonholes which are already available. When such difficulties crop up, the remedy is to have recourse to fresh observation and to collect more facts. In this connection there is an interesting story of Liebig, whose fame as a chemist rests on many other things than extract of meat. On one occasion he prepared a liquid which in many of its properties resembled chloride of iodine, although in other respects quite different. He was struck by the differences— but, without making any further experiments, devised an explanation which satisfied him at the time. He was at least sufficiently satisfied to label the bottle of liquid chloride of iodine. The reader can imagine Liebig's disappointment and chagrin a few months later, when he heard of the discovery by a Frenchman of the new element bromine, and realized that it was this element which he had had before his eyes all the time, and had labeled chloride of iodine. Liebig tells the story himself and quotes it as showing the result of adopting explanations not founded on experiment. As an example of the persistent and successful following up of puzzling observations by further experiments, nothing better can be quoted than the work which led to the discovery that there was in atmospheric air a gas, the presence of which had not previously been suspected. That argon, as this gas is now called, should have so long remained undiscovered, is due to the fact that it is extremely similar to nitrogen, it is, therefore, difficult to find any way of distinguishing and separating the two gases when they are mixed together as an ordinary air. As a matter of fact, argon is rather heavier, bulk for bulk, than nitrogen, and it was this slight difference which Lord Raleigh observed and followed up. Suppose the reader tries to realize how very small was the difference in weight actually observed. The globe which Lord Raleigh used in weighing gases was filled firstly with nitrogen, atmospheric nitrogen, atmospheric nitrogen obtained from air by removal of oxygen, moisture, and carbon dioxide, secondly, with nitrogen prepared from various chemical compounds. Although these two samples would naturally be expected to exhibit the same behavior, the weight of the atmospheric nitrogen filling the globe was one-seventh of a grain heavier than the weight, 35.5 grains, of the chemical nitrogen filling the same globe. This is obviously quite a small difference, and probably many investigators would have attributed the discrepancy to some error in their experiments and thought no more about it. Not so, Lord Raleigh. After showing that numerous possible sources of error were excluded, he succeeded, in cooperation with Professor Ramsay in separating and examining the argon which is responsible for the greater weight of atmospheric nitrogen, as compared with chemical nitrogen. From all this, the reader will see what a high value attaches to close and trustworthy observation, even of trifling occurrences. Elaborate apparatus and costly materials are all very well but what is primarily essential for the true investigator is the learning and observing attitude towards nature. Anyone, indeed, who cultivates the habit of careful and patient observation rediscovers many things for himself, and may hope to add his contribution to the romance of science. End of Chapter 30 End of The Romance of Modern Chemistry by James C. Phillip